welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Our podcast brings a little bit of why we do what we do to listeners in over 100 countries every week, and we're glad you're listening to this episode. But before we introduce our guests, I want to ask you a question, Kurt. Okay. Yeah, relax. Okay. <laughs> so have you ever done something outside of your normal behavior that, you know, when you think back on it, you probably wouldn't have done it if the circumstances had been different? Yeah, so that night guy versus morning guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Night, yeah, yeah. Well, there's lots of those from when my younger <laughs> drinking more heavily, but you know, share I, one, share one so, with us. So I will, I will share one. All right. So uh, I had been out and I had embedded or, or drank young? a few. Were, I was married, so this was this was um, this was a year ago. <laughs> no, no, this was maybe 20 years ago, pre kids. But I had been out, came back. Um, and I, I turned on television, and of course, what was on television at, at one in the morning in those times, twelve thirty in the morning Junk, at those, right. you know, you know, infomercial. Oh, <laughs> infomercial, and it was an infomercial for the uh, the seventies music collection. This eight CDs of the seventies music. Thus, I, I ended up owning the, oh. the 70s music. I called the 800 number back in the day, and I ordered. And my wife was actually up at the time. She hadn't gone out with me, but she had been up doing some work. And so she, I'm like, you know, should I do this? It's up to you, man. <laughs> so, wow. So I don't think that's exactly what you were getting at, wow. but I think it is. Context a, matters. It, it is context matters. And, yeah. and so having that, having drank a few beers and been in a situation where the television was out in, you know, easily thing where I came home and, and turned it on and the infomercial just happened to be on at, at that, that moment. Point. Yeah. If I had seen that infomercial, you know, in the morning, I definitely would not have bought the seventies experience. Morning right? game. Yeah. Well, I have a, I have a similar drinking story. <laughs> okay. But uh, different context. So okay. when I was young, uh, my father was an alcoholic and mm. I did not want to drink. So I went through uh, all my adult, you know, early part of my adult life, all through college into my 30s without having a drink. Uh, my father died when I was 35 years old. Okay. And a couple years after that, I was going to Ireland on a, on a tour. And uh, one of my brothers called and said, are you going to be in Dublin? And I said, yeah, I'm going to Dublin. He said, are you going to the Guinness factory? I said, yeah, I think, I think some of the people in the, in the band want to go to the Guinness factory. He said, this is your opportunity. You're going to the Holy of Holies. The Mecca of, of beer for those who for like the whole... dark stout beers. <laughs> exactly. This is it. So this, and it ended up that the place that I had my first beer in my whole life was at the Guinness factory. You, you are probably a handful of people that can say that. Probably, yeah, it's certainly at 37. Yeah, at 37, <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty interesting thing. But yeah. it was context. The context changed. Yes. Dramatically changed, yeah. Yeah. So that's what, that's what mattered. And that's what we're going to talk about with our guest today. Our guest is Alex Blau, an applied behavioral scientist and vice president at Ideas42, a nonprofit organization using behavioral science to improve the lives of people around the world. Alex has worked on issues in consumer finance, how we make decisions, and on projects all over the globe. In our discussion with Alex, we focused on a new project where Ideas 42 is trying to intercede in the lives of people who are under supervision after they have served time in prison. 
and who get trapped in the criminal justice system. Yeah, you know, the criminal justice system in the United States wears the ungainly medal for having the highest rate of incarceration among all countries, higher than El Salvador and Russia, and five times more than that of the UK or even China. Aside from the social justice issues, the incarceration and supervision systems cost U.S. consumers $6 billion a year. That's that's billion with a B. That's a big number. It's big with a B. One of the key contributors to this huge cost is recidivism, which is the tendency to be convicted of a crime after you've already been convicted of your first crime. Behavioral scientists know how large a role context and environment play in our behaviors. So it's not a surprise when someone returns to their same neighborhood. That's the one where they committed the original crime. And they violate either the rules of supervision or commit new crimes. If the context doesn't change, behaviors are unlikely to change as well. Okay, but don't be bummed out by all this heavy talk about recidivism and crime because we also covered a short history of Jamaican music and we laughed a lot. (laughs) We did. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Speaking of laughter, we'd like to thank Steely Chili, a listener in the United States for writing a generous review where he or she said... I love the joy and laughter that these two display when mewling over or grooving on ideas about behavioral science. I've enjoyed every episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Steely Chili. Steely Chili. I like that name. Yeah. Him or her. Him or her, right? That's right. All right. So sit back, take in a deep, free, unlocked up breath, and listen to our interview with Alex Blau. Let's get started with the speed round. All right, Alex, bike or unicycle? Uh, bike. Electric guitar or acoustic guitar? Oh, that's so hard. Um, acoustic for practice, electric for performances. Oh, good, good okay. answer. All right. If you, had live, <laughs> if you had to live life without a phone or a laptop, which would you choose? phone <laughs> that was that was a stressed component there I, yeah no i mean my my lizard brain was like keep the phone keep the phone and at that point i was like i shouldn't keep the phone so that's that's probably a yeah get rid of the phone, <laughs> rid of the phone. <laughs> don't, don't satisfy the lizard brain yeah. We got a funny story from Danny Oppenheimer on that when he said he was sort of forced to live without a phone for a while and after he came back from living without a phone, he was like, I don't need it. I can actually do without it, which was pretty cool. Okay, last, last speed round question. Prison recidivism, uh, is it a result of primarily a result of new crimes or rule violations? Ooh, technically it's, it's new crimes, but they, they basically compete 50-50. So I think it's like 48% technical violations, 52% new crimes. All right, so, so let's let's yeah. dig into that a little bit because you are working on a project that is all about uh, helping reduce that recidivism into the prison system. So you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Just kind of give the listeners a big picture overview. Yeah, so big picture overview. Uh, we we have a, a very big criminal justice system. Uh, a lot of people are incarcerated. We have we're the most incarcerated country in the world. We have about two point three million people. Uh, in the in, in the prison and, and jail system right now, um, but what I think a lot of people don't recognize is that uh, 
our our correction system is actually about 6.6 billion people and about 4.5, sorry, million people and about 4.5 million of those individuals. Yeah, it was a very big number. I was going to say, that's like the entire population is in jail. (laughs) It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, Our our communities. Yeah, are being supervised in the community. So um, we have uh, about um, uh, about three three and a half million people under community supervision in, in probation. So that's you know people who didn't go to prison but were sentenced to community supervision, and then another uh, eight hundred thousand that are on uh, parole, which is a, a post release supervision. And what's kind of wild to consider is that you know I think that. We as a country recognize that incarceration is, is not just problematic from a social justice standpoint, but also really expensive um, and much more expensive than some of these other options. Um, and it causes a lot of trauma for individuals who have to go through the incarcerative system. So we prefer to be able to keep them in community and help them out through that process. But what we find is, ironically, the, the supervisory system is actually one of the largest contributors to incarceration. That in, in nationally, about 45% of all new entrants uh, to prison uh, come through the, the supervisory system. And so if we're really serious about trying to reduce the number of people that we incarcerate, uh, we should be focusing very much on trying to improve outcomes for those individuals who are under community supervision. So uh, tell us about the supervisory system. Can you give us a little uh, more detail about what the supervisory system is? Yeah. So, so basically, uh, when when someone is either put on probation or parole, they have a set of conditions that they need to meet, and these are things like certain number of meetings with a parole or probation officer. Maybe they have curfew requirements. Uh, maybe they have to do drug testing on a regular basis. Um, but there are also other sorts of conditions, such as not interacting with people who have prior criminal records. It may require going to various sorts of treatment, um, and and basically maintaining what we would consider to be uh, a good, stable, law-abiding life uh, with some impositions put on top of you. Um, and for some individuals, this you know requires a lot of checking in with your probation and parole officer and a lot of oversight. But for a lot of individuals, you're sort of put into the system. Uh, you, you may have consequences for either abiding or not abiding, but you don't really have a lot of people paying attention to you or providing you support. Um, and that's, a, that's one of the key problems right now with the system. And so you're working on a program to to help with some of that. So I'll explain a little bit about that program and what you're what you're trying to do. Yeah. So one of the things that we know is that we can we can help reduce the likelihood that people will go either into the the prison system or, or get kind of trapped in the criminal justice system by engaging them with programs and services that can address some of the needs that they have and some of the risks that they may face in community. Um, so as you can imagine, a lot of people who are involved in the criminal justice system uh, go in because uh, they may have uh, they, they may be facing poverty or other sorts of, of conditions of scarcity. Uh, they have may have mental health issues. They may have substance abuse issues. They may have past trauma that is causing them to, to have behavioral issues um, that are that are sort of unaddressed. Um, and in 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 the context they were in before, a lot of these things are not really addressed by their community or or by the, the sort of context around them. Um, and once they're in the criminal justice system, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people still don't have a lot of those needs and risks managed or, or appropriately met. And this so, is, what we're really trying to yeah, go ahead. 
Well, no, this is a really interesting a- aspect because you mentioned about getting trapped into the system. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you could talk more about how you, you, you mentioned a variety of things that are, uh, are reasons why people get into uh, the, the system, how they become incarcerated in the first place. And tell us more about the, the trap. How, do, how is it that uh, people are unable to get out of it? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a, as a behavioral scientist, as a practicing behavioral scientist, you know, I think very much about what motivates the behaviors that we see. And, and oftentimes what this really comes down to is that your context, the environment that you're in, that social reality, that political reality, that economic reality is going to very much impact the decisions and actions that you take. And so you can imagine if someone who, who comes from an environment where uh, their needs are not being met. They're under these these economic conditions of scarcity, these psychological conditions of, of scarcity, and also facing potential trauma um, that they're very likely going to put themselves in positions where they may have to commit a crime or do something that that is not okay in order to survive or or meet some other need that they have in that environment. Um, and in some sense, it's just a coping mechanism. You know, if, if we're if we're under some economic duress and we have to feed our children, we're going to be more likely to steal something to do that. Uh, than we are to, to you know, try to get a job, which may take a much longer period of time. Um, and so what we find is that uh, if you come from that situation, you go into the incarcerative system, um, or you're put on supervision, uh, and, and either you face even greater trauma, or are put under impositions now under this you know, situation that you're already facing a lot of scarce resources and, and, and increased need, um, that people will return back to those environments and, and continue to basically do the things that they had done before. Um, so without intervention, that context doesn't change. And if that context doesn't change, then people are going to very likely continue to exhibit the behaviors that we see. And so is there, so what is the solution to this? What are you working on to try to uh, stop that recidivism and that kind of being stuck in that trap of going around and around and being stuck in the context that you just talked about? Yeah, so uh, in in mostly urban environments, I mean, I think that the the rural challenge is a is a separate issue and something that really needs to be thought about with, with sort of greater greater depth and, and sensitivity. But um, in in urban environments in a lot of cities, there are community based organizations, uh, there are service providers, human service providers that can help to address some of the needs and risks that people face in their environment. I mean, literally helping people get jobs, helping people to manage their their substance abuse issues, uh, be able to uh, exhibit more pro-social psych- psychological uh, behaviors. So, you know, not getting uh, angry very quickly or uh, managing your emotions when you're having a, an interaction with someone that, that isn't going the way you expect it to. Um, and, and these have been proven to reduce the likelihood that people go back into uh, the incarcerative system or go back into the criminal justice system because they're addressing those underlying needs that, that create the instability in the first place. Um, but what we also find is that a lot of folks um, either coming out of prison or even in supervision aren't connected with those programs and services, uh, despite having significant needs. And so what this intervention does is it reduces a lot of the search costs, um, helps people identify programs and services that they can they can take advantage of, and then uses what's called an implementation intention framework, really helping people to make plans and commitments around engaging with those programs and services in the future to increase the likelihood that they'll then follow through. So the whole hope here is not only are we helping people identify programs, but in identifying them and then providing some nudges along the way, we can help them engage over the long term and then receive the maximum benefit that they can get from, from those programs and services. 
we just, we interviewed Roger Dooley has a new book coming out called Friction, right? So basically you're talking about reducing the friction of being able to get these services uh, and, and make sure that people are, are using them appropriately. So it sounds really fascinating from that perspective, you know? Um, the other interesting piece, you talked about implementation uh, components. Is that the, the, if this blank happens, then I will be, are you using basically, if right. then, as you're working through some of these? So, so thankfully, no, I think that those are, it's sort of a staid attitude about this. Uh, so uh, <laughs> folks like Todd Rogers and Katie Milkman have done a really great job of expanding how we think about these implementation intentions. And the real basic components are uh, you have a plan in place, you have a trigger event that happens, and then you implement that plan when that trigger occurs. The if-then framework is really helpful at saying, if this occurs, then do this, right? And so it's super explicit. Um, but oftentimes the triggers that we want to have in our environments, maybe things that we have to kind of make up or describe on our own or, or provide to an individual at that moment when they're supposed to be taking action. So a lot of what we're really trying to focus on is helping people decide about a behavior that they want to exhibit in, in the future and then delivering some sort of either reminder or notification or something at the appropriate time to trigger that action that they're then going to take. Um, but again, it's super, it's super just being very concrete about saying, I intend to do this at this time this way. And, you know, when I deliver this message, I'm going to then go ahead and actually follow through with that intention. Yeah, I, I, I was, uh, I'm going to make sure that the BSBA paper that uh, uh, Todd and Katie wrote is in our show, in our uh, episode links, because it's really a great paper. And it really gets into this, the, the nuances of, of, of taking if, you know, then or if, <laughs> and really breaking it down into more situational things. And I really like the way you talked about how you're looking at it from an urban, you're, you're trying to uh, solve this problem on an urban level and uh, are sort of pushing off and saying the, um, the more rural side really is going to revolve around a whole separate different set of circumstances and another set of problems. So you're, you're, so you're, you're saying that, that the rural versus urban issues are yeah. potentially significantly different. So the, the big difference is simply that in, in the same way that we have food deserts in some portions of cities, um, a lot of these rural environments have sort of service provider deserts in the sense that, you know, while there may be a job placement program that exists in New York or readily available substance abuse treatment programs, um, those sorts of things may not exist in, in, a, in a rural environment in the middle of the country. And so what we find is that when people are going back, there's literally no systems of supports, um, even, even sort of traditional systems of supports, like for instance, church or religious organizations may not be well set up to be able to provide the kinds of services necessary. Um, and so, you know, we, we do have a very different kind of challenge. Um, we have a hypothesis about this, which is that the same kind of implementation intention framework can be helpful. Um, but we have to be very clear about uh, what kinds of options people have, what sorts of plans that they can take on when, you know, for instance, you have a craving, but you have no AA meeting that you can go to. Or if you have, uh, you know, a moment of anger, um, but you haven't been able to go through a facilitated anger management program. Um, and, and that's something that we're beginning to think about. And actually, this, this ties potentially really nicely with some of the work that uh, Crime Lab and New Chicago and, and people like Jens Ludwig are doing and working on, which is really looking at, you know, how do you help people um, become more situationally aware? And how do you then use that situational awareness to be able to facilitate some of these implementation intentions? How long has uh, Virgil been up and running? 
So we're, we're at the very early stages of this. Um, we, we sort of actually, it, it's sort of a weird, disjointed, longish story, but we began this work back in 2013 um, in South Africa. Uh, we were under contract, Ideas42 was under contract by uh, the, the premier of the Western Cape uh, to try to do a number of pieces of work within uh, and around Cape Town, one of which was trying to reduce crime and violence in some of the, the townships around Cape Town. Um, around 2010 or so, there was a, a, a big uptick in, in violent crime within some of the townships. And this was the first time that, that this level of violence had been seen uh, post-apartheid. And so it was a really big deal. And, and people were trying to figure out why this was happening and what we could do about it. Um, we did some work to better understand the decisions and actions that were leading to the violent crimes that we were seeing. And, you know, we found some really interesting sort of pieces of evidence that helped us to, to make more sense of the situation. Uh, one was that most of the violent crime that we were seeing, both the victims and the perpetrators themselves were quite young. So within that kind of 16 to 24 year old range. Uh, what we also found was that a lot of the crimes were happening uh, during very specific times of the week and during very specific times of the day. So we'd, we'd find that the majority of these activities were occurring on nights and weekends. Um, and, and oftentimes when we, when we did a little bit more in investigation, we found that they were actually happening in very localized places as well. Um, and so uh, when, we, when we chatted with some of the youth who were involved in gangs or uh, involved in these sorts of environments, uh, something they would tell us is that they would go to what they call these shabines, which are informal bars uh, where people might be doing drugs or just hanging out. There may be prostitution. It's not a very desirable place to go, but it's just where you showed up when you were a kid because you knew that you might be able to see your friends and it was just a social environment. Um, but at the same time, it was the sort of place where under the cover of darkness in the context of strangers, opportunistic crime would happen. Uh, what we also recognized was that there was no real distinction between uh, perpetrator and victim, that often the perpetrators were victims at one point, and sometimes those victims had perpetrated before. Um, and really, the, the nature of the crime was much more opportunistic than anything else. And again, like you can imagine this, right? You're in a situation where someone has money out, and because they took money out in the public space, you're going to take it from them. Uh, had the money not been there, had maybe there been more people around paying attention, you may not have taken that action. And, and really what we recognized was that a lot of the, the crimes that we were seeing were happening because of these sort of automatic moments. You know, Jens Ludwig has this great quote that if, if you were to take, you know, change just 10 seconds of decision making for someone, that could have been the difference between them committing a crime or not committing a crime. And so we took this to recognize that we, we had an opportunity to help people uh, get away from these environments. And that was really the key insight, that if you recognize that some of these, these moments are, are very contextual, that you go to this place at this certain time of the day under the cover of darkness in the context of strangers and crime occurs, that if you can remove people from those environments to where those sorts of situational factors may not be nearly as much as at play, you might be able to help them to reduce the likelihood that they're going to either become a victim or victimize somebody. And so we built a tool understanding that people were often defaulting to these locations, right? They weren't really thinking about it. There was no deliberative plan that was going on. And instead, what we did is we created a tool that would help them to identify alternative choices, so expand their choice set. Um, and then when they found something that they wanted to do, they'd be able to go through this implementation intention framework, making a decision about when it would happen, where it would happen, what things they might need to be able to facilitate it and then to invite their friends as a form of additional commitment. Um, and we implemented this as a sort of small RCT pilot. 
um, with some youth who were involved in a youth employment program through the Western Cape. And what we found was that the youth who used our tool, as opposed to being just told about crime statistics in their community, uh, exhibited uh, lower rates, self-reported, mind you, lower rates of crime and violence, uh, and, and also felt safer during the week. Um, and so we took this insight and then tried to bring it to the United States, which is where a lot of this work now began. That is just absolutely terrific. So that was the um, that was the catalyst to get you thinking about. Well, let's bring it back to the United States and do something. Uh, you, but instead of uh, but you were applying it in this parole environment in the supervision model. Uh, and uh, okay, so let's get back to uh, how far you are at rolling it out. We've spent the last year doing a lot of research here in New York and in other places around the country to really better understand how well the insights from, from Cape Town map on to the context that we're seeing here in the United States. Um, one of the other things that we tried to do initially was, very similar to Cape Town, focus this intervention on youth. Um, but what we found in doing a deployment was that youth were not really interested in safety strategies. You know, What we were doing was basically providing them diversions that they could take advantage of most of which were municipally provided. So, you know, library programs or public park programs or something along those lines. And kids have substitutes, which are way better than what we were able to provide in the form of their friends or Facebook or whatever happens outside of that. So, you know, really what we were dealing with was this undesirable problem that the options that we were providing just weren't great. Um, And it caused us to take a step back and try to make sense of, you know, where else might we be able to apply this idea and make it more impactful and effective And we thought about folks who um, would have a stronger intention to take on these sorts of programs and services or really looking for strategies to to help them stabilize and keep themselves safe. Um, One of the frameworks that that we use at Ideas42, actually, I don't think I even introduced what Ideas42 is. So (laughs) let's do that. For those listeners who don't know who Ideas42 is, tell us a little bit about this wonderful organization. Sure. So I, I, I have, before all the Virgil stuff, uh, I've been working uh, as a vice president for an organization called Ideas42. Ideas42 is a behavioral science nonprofit. We're based in New York with a few offices around the country and actually a, a burgeoning office, hopefully in India soon. Um, and what we do is we apply insights from behavioral science uh, through a, a design methodology to, to help basically help organizations, governments, other service providers tweak their program and service offerings to help improve the likelihood that their end users are going to exhibit the behaviors that they ultimately want them to. Um, again, it's a social good organization, so we do a lot of this work in things like the environment and social justice, uh, personal finance, that kind of stuff. Um, but one of the things that we always look towards uh, and to get around the criticism that we're you know, sort of uh, uh, mind manipulators um, is that we really try to focus on um, what we call intention action gaps. So the idea is that People might have an intention to do something. Um, we see that they don't actually exhibit that behavior in real life. And so we ask ourselves, what might be going on in the context that's reducing the likelihood that someone's going to follow through on this? Um, and so uh, this is helpful because what it means is that we're really just helping people to follow through on the things they want to follow through on and not motivating decisions that they, they wouldn't take on otherwise. Um, there are some times where we have to play with perception because sometimes people have clear misperceptions. Right, which might be motivating the behaviors that we see. Uh, but where there's no misperception, it's usually some engineering problem within their environment that really needs to be solved for. So so we we focus on this as an organization, but it was something that I was able to to use when trying to evaluate where this this intervention, this virtual intervention might be most effective. So as I said, you know, youth 
didn't have a strong intention to take on safety strategies. Um, and so trying to solve that by filling in the intention action gap or, or creating a little engineering uh, change wasn't really going to do very much. Um, but we did want to find a population who did have a strong intention to take on these safety strategies. And we identified um, the reentry population as actually being one that was facing actually very similar context to these youth, uh, but would have taken, because of an experience that they had, a very different perspective about what they wanted to achieve in the future. And so we then reoriented this intervention to focus then on people who are coming out of prison and jail, people who are within the criminal justice system. Uh, so people who are really trying to not commit crimes in the future, don't want to go back and instead find that stability and continue forward. Um, understanding, again, that there's a lot of context in the environment that they're in that makes it hard for them to do that. You talked about that, the component that you said, hey, there's that 10 second component that can change a person's life. And actually we heard Sendil Mullinathan talked about it. talked about same thing. He was working with the Cook County jailers and the jailer actually was the one who said, Hey, if I could, if I could snip 30 seconds out of these kids' lives, they wouldn't be in jail the way they are today. And I'm just wondering, so as you're thinking about what you're doing, how do you, how do you get people who are in these situations who might you know, don't want to go, you know, they've, they've been to jail. They don't want to go back to jail. They want to do everything they are, but they're put back into, as you said, into a context that, Hey, I'm in that same life. I don't have a job. I don't, you know, I, I, I still have to feed my family. You know, my buddies are all out there doing stuff. So how do you take those moments and, and how do you put these safety components in? So they don't have those 10 seconds or those 30 seconds in their lives moving forward. Yeah, no, I mean, it, this is this is the the, uh, the preeminent challenge that we're faced with right now. Um, but I think that what we're really trying to focus on is getting people at that critical point where that intention is strongest so that they're willing to think about their future selves. So again, right, this is very much thinking about not my present self, but thinking about my future self, making commitments up towards that future self in the future about things that you're going to take advantage of. Uh, and then helping them to then follow through on those things uh, with the the big overarching goal being that those things that they take advantage of are interventions that are going to help moderate their their emotions, help them to find those contexts that are going to remove them from those situational factors that might trigger those actions that we, we don't want, those 10 second actions that we don't want. Um, but basically reducing the likelihood that those things would occur simply because we're removing them from environments where those things are likely to occur. So the naysayers uh, would probably claim that people who are coming out of, uh, of imprisonment and going into the parole system and then fail really just didn't have the level of commitment or conviction to just, just do right. And so they deserve to go back. Uh, how, how, right? What? No, no. Am I, am I misstating? No. So, uh, so how, how do you, how do you respond to, uh, to the, the naysayers? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to say that there are always going to be some people who are going to commit crimes, right? There are always going to be some people who are criminally minded. There are always going to be some people who, you know, in, 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 the, in the grit sense, don't have enough grit to overcome some of the challenges that they face in their environment and are going to be more likely to fail. And we may observe that as them not being qualified to stay out, right? But the reality is a lot of the reasons we see people fail are because of things like, I'll just give you a very quick example. Uh, in order to get a job, you have to be able to fill out a W-4. 
in order to get a W-4, you need to be able to have two forms of identification. And one of those forms of identification that you often need in order to get other forms of identification, especially if you don't have any, is a birth certificate. But I can tell you that not only is it costly to get a, a birth certificate, but if you were born out of the state that you're in right now, there's very little facilitation to be able to do that. Now, you can get some support, but it means going to the right organization. And maybe you don't know who that organization is, right? And so what we're really dealing with is a sit, and it goes back to how people get trapped. We're going, we're create, we've created a system where we expect people to be able to figure out how to jump through hoops that they didn't even know existed. And there's no pathway to help describe to them the steps that they can take incrementally to get to those big goals. And so a lot of what we're also doing is helping people like very much describe what those big goals are, but breaking those big goals down into a series of incremental steps that start with things like going to the organization that can help you get your birth certificate. Because if you jump someone straight to going to a job placement program, they're obviously going to have a very, very difficult time succeeding there. So I, I think that the people who are, who are claiming that this is a grit problem should first look to the environment to understand some of the impossible asks that we're trying to get people to follow through on um, and then be critical, hopefully, of, of the, the, the context and, and the political environment that makes it really hard for people to succeed. Well, and you talked at the very beginning about, you know, these supervised people going back out in the community and some are high touch, but most of them have a have a relatively little touch. So they don't have that support. And so what you're doing is saying, hey, we are helping these people understand and work the way through the labyrinth or the maze that is this way of, of trying to move beyond where they were as you said, jumping through hoops, they didn't even know that existed. So how, so help, help people, our listeners understand exactly how you're doing that. What are the, what are the touch points that you have with these people in order to help them, you know, get through these hoops? Yeah. So, so what we, what we're doing is we're, we're doing an intake initially to understand for each individual, what are the risks and needs that you're facing? This helps us to figure out what people might need in their environment and begins the process of directing them. Uh, what we then do is help those individuals uh, through a motivational interview process, identify for themselves goals and, and intentions that they want to set at a broad scale. So these are things like getting a job or, or dealing with my sobriety um, or being a better father, for instance, for my, for my kids, something along those lines. And based on those goals, what we're, what we're doing is charting what we call pathways. And these are breaking these goals down into, again, sets of incremental steps that go through either government agencies or service providers that can help people meet that step. And again, it might be something like just going to the, the benefits office so that you can get healthcare and, and welfare uh, so that you have at least some income to support you as you take further steps in the action. Uh, for, for a job, uh, for getting a job, it might be directing them to an organization that can help them set up a resume, then directing them to an organization that can provide them with interview clothes and then directing them to an organization that can do job training and placement afterwards. And what we've also baked into this is, again, we try to be behavioral because we recognize that failures, even small failures, can really derail people. And so we want to, in this context, set expectations about where those failures might occur and to help motivate people to persist through them. So one of the, the sort of cute attributes that we have within the, uh, the job placement uh, pathway is that we ask people to get rejection letters. That that's a, that's a step in the process that we want people to achieve. Because if they don't, and they just receive one, and they consider it to be the end of the process, then they're not going to persist in sending out more. 
And so we, we do want to normalize some of the things that can be very painful in this process, um, but just as a step forward, as, as opposed to some reframing as a step forward, as opposed to a step back. I love that reframing a rejection letter as, hey, that's expected. And actually, you should be getting multitudes of those. Collect them all. Yeah. That's yeah. what you do. That's how this works. And for many people, if they haven't ever experienced that, I could see where that that's a major setback. Wow, I, I really wanted this job. I got rejected. Now I'm just going to fall back into my neurosis and depression and probably not that bad, but yeah. Well, it's, it's a great way of reframing all the rejection letters we get from people that we ask to be on the podcast that say, no, I think this is going to be, this, this really helps me. So thank you, Alex. So yeah, the more you get, the better you're doing, right? Exactly. The more we're asking. So you, and all this is, is, is at no charge, right? Every, every, everybody gets all this at no charge, right? So the, the goal is that we're, uh, so this is, this is something that we're beginning to work out right now. Um, right now, what we know is uh, there's a huge cost in the system. So we spend about $6.6 billion a year to supervise the total population under supervision. But this population in, creates another $9 billion in cost when we incarcerate them. So the failure rates in, the, in and of themselves are exceeding in total cost the amount that we're actually putting into the, the supervisory system in the first place. Which means that you know we we obviously have a problem with where we're putting our money. Um, the goal here is really trying to get government, and we're seeing this begin to happen. Think about ways where they can make strategic investments that are evidence based, that are going to produce cost savings in the system, which can then be reallocated towards other investments that could potentially continue to catalyze change. And so, what we're now seeing across the country is a number of what are called justice reinvestment initiatives. So the, the office, uh, the Bureau of Justice Administration has been providing uh, grants and other sorts of financial support as well as, as uh, technical support um, through entities such as the Council of State Government, uh, Pew, uh, Urban Institute, um, to help state governments understand where those inefficiencies might exist within their existing systems, what policy changes or other sorts of interventions might be helpful at reducing some of those costs, and advice about where that cost savings should be reinvested to try to help improve outcomes overall. And so what we're really trying to do is, is capture some percentage of that reinvestment as part of what we consider to be catalyzing factors that can help to reduce the likelihood that people end up recidivating. Um, so the business model is really around trying to create savings for states and local government that they can then put back into the system to help continue the snowball effect of improving people's outcomes and long-term livelihoods. Yeah, that, that, that is, that is uh, terrific. You mentioned the state governments uh, are... Is most of the funding that is coming for uh, the supervision system for parolees, is it coming from the states or is there some that's coming from federal? So some is coming from federal. Uh, some is coming from budgets within tax, you know, tax allocated budgets. Um, but a fair amount of probation and parole costs are actually being paid for by the individuals themselves. Um, and, you know, we can talk about whether or not we consider that to be fair or unfair. But the reality is that a lot of revenue for probation and parole departments are coming through what we call just supervisory fees, the so things that people are paying on a regular basis in order to uh, finance uh, either the services that they're receiving, uh, be it drug testing or something along those lines, or, or even for those individuals that have electronic monitoring, the GPS or the RF cuffs that they wear on a regular basis. Um, what we're trying to propose, again, you know, we spend twice the amount, more than twice the amount that we're currently spending within the, the probation and parole system just to incarcerate people that we could probably cover a fair amount of those costs directly through those cost savings 
um, so that we don't actually have to have that financial burden put on individuals. And I know that you guys had a conversation a couple of episodes ago around uh, the psychological impacts of scarcity. And I think that this is actually a really important piece of why it's necessary to try to reduce some of the costs for this population. You know, there's this, again, this conversation that asking people to pay for the things that they've done makes some sense. But at the same time, I would consider being under this imposition as pretty costly to begin with. And if you're not really receiving much support, then it's, it's unclear what the role of the state actually is in trying to improve some of these outcomes. Um, yeah. But the reality is, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, it, it, I'm not sure exactly where this research come, but I, I remember reading it recently where the cognitive ability for people when they have economic pressures on them has been actually shown to be reduced. And so you're actually looking at this from the perspective of saying, hey, you're adding a burden onto these people who are probably already in a in a uh, scarcity mode and you're now adding this whole other aspect that isn't necessarily... We, we don't always think about that, right? We don't think about the mental anguish and the, the, the cognitive impact that a financial component has on people. And so I think it just reiterates what you're talking about, right? So how can we, if our ultimate end goal is to make these people better citizens that are providing, you know, that are, that are working within the communities, providing benefits to the community and not going back into the prison system, isn't it in our best interest to do everything that we can in order to help them um, be that? As, as, as you said, yes, there's probably a component that says, hey, you did this. You have to pay some of these costs. That's that kind of, hey, justice retribution component. But then if you're looking at the long-term outcome, there's, an, there's another aspect of, of framing this, right? Framing it within the, the community of saying, but we want these people to succeed. And we want these people to be successful within the community and within the larger society. And so let's make let's let's give them a chance at being able to do this, as opposed to, you know, undercutting their feet before they even get a chance. As a as a behavioral scientist, again, you know, I think about how our criminal justice system and how our legal system was created to some degree. You know, we we assume the rational actor model in creating laws and creating you know things like deterrence mechanisms. Because we assume that it's just a, an economic trade-off. But what we don't recognize is that by putting people into this condition, we have really deleterious cognitive effects that is sort of like cutting people's legs off before we give it an opportunity to, to walk or run. And so I think it's, it's really important for us as we're thinking about you know, reforming the system or reforming aspects of the system to not just think about the incentive structure, but also think about what are those contexts that we're putting people into? How is it affecting their ability to make good decisions for themselves? And is it, from a, from a purely cost-benefit analysis perspective, make sense to do that if we want to achieve better outcomes across the system? That is so great. I mean, it, it, to go back to uh, to go back to uh, the beginnings of our our legal system based on the rational agent model. Wow, that's uh, we could spend an hour on that. <laughs> but uh, and as much as I would like to, I also want to talk about music. Sure, <laughs> not sure. Hell yes, I mean, no, heck yeah, heck yeah, okay. for sure. You uh, so uh, you are uh, a musician. You're you, you're a songwriter. You not only write just songs, but you have written songs about behavioral biases. 
I mean, what better subject matter to be able to write songs about? Aren't aren't all songs somehow related to some sort of human condition element that you're that we're dealing with? I mean, to every love song ever written, it's all about the emotion. It's about that emotional component, you know. Pretty much every country song has, you know, loss or something in it. So I lost my dog. I lost my pickup truck. Yeah, you got this loss aversion element. That We're just being explicit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I, I have to ask you, uh, you, you do have a, a song called I Am My Own Contextual Feature. I'm going to bring it up. I know that's in demo form. You haven't finalized a recording of it, but you were generous enough to share the lyrics with us. And I mean, this is just spot on, man. You are just, you are just, you are driving it home on the, on the behavioral <laughs> science side with this thing. I love it. <laughs> So the, yeah, I mean, we, we tried to, I tried to, we, so I, I wrote this song, we do a, a, a company retreat every year and I felt like, you know, why not write a great behavioral song for our company retreat? Because we have, we do this talent show, it'd just be fun. Um, but I also wanted to not just embed some really classical, you know, notions of behavioral science and some of the, the, the cool insights that we found, um, but also this, this sort of lament that the practitioner has, because of course, you know, we know we're supposed to know better than everybody else about what our biases are and that we can overcome them and how to overcome them. But the irony is that uh, we often, even despite that knowledge, get in our own way because we don't go the extra mile to design those solutions around ourselves, right? So, you know, we, we know how to solve the problem, but again, we are our own contextual feature and it becomes a problem for us practitioners who are often focused on solving other people's problems as opposed to our own. Exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to read just one of my favorite lyrics from this. All right. So I, this is not <laughs> singing. That's not my forte. So true. Get, <laughs> thank you, Tim. Give me one or two jam jars of jam to pick. And I'll pick them just like a pro, but give me 10 or 20 or more and you'll see I'll stick with my status quo. I mean, it's, you're taking a <laughs> famous, famous study. Shout out to Sheena Yengar. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And it's so true. I mean, we know that. We know that if we go into the, that supermarket that, hey, it shouldn't matter. I mean, actually give me more choice because I know that that ultimately, economically speaking, I, sh- I should like that, right? And, but we know that that also inhibits me actually making a choice because it's just cognitive overload. And yet we don't overcome that ourselves. So, so, uh, yeah. so Alex, would, would you say that uh, behavioral scientists are more or less um, affected by the GI Joe effect? Oh, this is, this is an effect I'm not aware of. Yeah. Tell me about this. Lori Santos um, came up with this was where she's basing it on this idea that we um, that at the end of the G.I. Joe episodes, the, the cartoons, G.I. Joe would say, Heads, now, you know, and knowing is half the battle. And she says, that's bullshit. Knowing is not even close to half the battle <laughs> just because, you know, doesn't help, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it help no. enough. Well, it's something, I mean, we, we talk about this a lot when it comes to things like financial education or education generally, right? We, we know that you can, you can increase someone's knowledge of something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to affect their behavior. And again, it comes back to the same thing. If you don't change the context that they're in, you're probably not going to motivate them to have a change in their behavior either. But they will be much more savvy about their own biases. 
<laughs> and and they'll be able to talk them around their biases, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah, that's how it works for me because I know X, Y, and Z. So, so uh, getting back to music, what's on your playlist these days? Um, oh, I mean, it's been <laughs> unfortunately, it's mostly been really chill music uh, through like Apple's chill playlist or something like that. Because I need to listen to basically ambient noise when I'm when I'm doing work. Um, but outside of that, I listen to a lot of like Tropicalia music and I grew up, uh, my, my mother's a Jamaican. So I grew up listening to a lot of reggae and I, I love that stuff. Um, yeah, so it's, it's mostly kind of world Afro diaspora jazz pop kind of stuff. All right. We have to ask because we actually have a episode that we recorded, but it hasn't been published yet where we're talking about using music as is, does it detract from you working or does it enhance your working? So do you, when you are working, do you, you said you have the ambient kind of chill music in the background. It, do you find that that helps in your creative and, and in your, 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 your work process or uh, Tim can't have music going on. I am similar to you. I like to have some background. Again, I just can't have lyrics that I start to sing along with. I need kind of just some EDM or some, you know, just music that doesn't have lyrics or at least lyrics I don't know. I'm going to do that gross researcher thing where I say, it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, So, yeah, I believe, and at least for me, it depends on what I'm doing, right? So if I'm sitting there and I'm doing research or writing or need to just think really concretely about something, I need to listen to something that's not going to be intrusive. And that's also going to drown out all the other stuff that might be going on around me. I try to create that cognitive tunnel because I think it's super important for doing the focused work. If I'm doing design or, or creative or some sort of ideation type stuff, I try to find music that's upbeat and interesting and fun and motivating and if I'm trying to work out, then I'm probably going to do something that's a little bit harder. Maybe that's when the metal comes out or, or you know, some dance music or something along those lines. But it really, you know, it really depends on the context. Weird. Context oh, context matters. Okay. Context matters. <laughs> uh, but uh, help, I love this. I, I, I didn't, re- didn't know that you come from, that you're half Jamaican. That is just so cool. Uh, so for those listeners who think of reggae as Bob Marley and that that's the beginning and end of their reggae lexicon, Help us, uh, give us some recommendations on uh, artists that you think would be really good to check out. Oh, so uh, I'm a huge Desmond Decker fan if you're down for some ska stuff. So I don't know if, if people know the, the, the where reggae comes from and how it sits in this whole sort of, you know, history of Jamaican music. No, you should, um, you but should Jamaica, this. this is good. This is, yeah, this right, is we'll a- go, we can go through. So, so, so back in the 1940s and 50s in Jamaica, there was music called mento music, which is uh, it's, it's, as folky as it gets. You'd have like maybe a banjo player and someone with just a, something similar to a, um, a, a cajon. Uh, maybe you would have a guitar player as well, right? So, you know, very, very sort of basic folky stuff. Um, and it sounded kind of like um, this mix between what, what we would sort of think about as ska with the same kind of lyricism as early blues music in the United States. So it's this very kind of salt of the earth sort of stuff. Um, and then what happened was mental music turned into what we call rock steady, uh, which is a more upbeat version, a little bit more electric. Uh, and then rock steady evolved into what we consider to be ska, which then became reggae. So 
uh, reggae is a sort of slowed down, much more rootsy version of ska. Ska is very upbeat. Um, but uh, Desmond Decker was one of the, the, the sort of foremost uh, influencers within that genre. And it's just, it's great music. And I think that if, you, if you're familiar with stuff like from the, the Toots and the Maytals as well, that's, that's sort of very traditional ska music. Um, but the reggae stuff, you know, uh, Bob, I would consider to be probably, <laughs> frankly, I think about him as more of a pop musician than anything else. Um, <laughs> but he does very much embody uh, what we would consider to be kind of roots reggae. Um, and if we're thinking about more modern stuff, I mean, like, again, we, I, I can generally skip over dance hall, um, cause there's a lot of both really great music, but also like very toxic stuff that goes on in dance hall. Um, and, and now there's this new revolution called, uh, roots revival music, which is a reggae revival, which is, um, being basically brought forward by a younger, much more liberal, uh, much more forward thinking group of, of musicians in Jamaica. And um, one who I'm, I'm really excited about is this, this young woman named Coffee, uh, K-O-F-F-E-E. And she is, I think she's like 17 or something like that. But she is one of the most impressive artists on the scene right now. She was uh, mentored by another a great artist, Protégé, uh, who's another one of these you know, sort of eminent individuals within this new genre. Um, and is also uh, affiliated with another musician who I highly recommend, this guy Chronix, um, who is doing just great sort of reggae revival music and, and, and bringing back um, not just roots music, but this sort of long heritage of, of music in Jamaica and infusing it into something that feels much more modern and much more of, of the moment. Wow. I love talking new music. And th- th- this is one of the things that uh, sometimes Kurt and I will uh, will be in discussion and Kurt will be saying, well, you don't listen to any new music or you don't buy any new music. I was like, oh, I don't buy new new music because I'm constantly talking to musicians, getting infused with new ideas about who you should listen to and, and going to shows and here we'll trade CDs and, and uh, all those kinds of things. It's just, I love having these conversations, Alex. And yet you still listen to music pre 1978. Cause there's a time. There's a hell. I mean, we're, hey, you know, the music was great back then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's just, he's buttering you up, Tim. There you go. I, right. I, I think you could not just take the 1970s. You could actually, actually look at the 1770s and look at all the great music that was written then in the yeah. 1670s. Lots of, there's a big library of music stacked up waiting for us every day. All right, there we go. That's very true. We're going to start fuging soon. I'm stoked about that. <laughs> 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 wow, we could have a we could have a fugue revival. <laughs> Ooh, I love it. I I'm, I'm going to have to put that in the show notes. Let's see if we get anybody to bite on that. <laughs> Uh, well, Alex, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for for talking with us. We really do appreciate it and uh um thank you. Hey, thank you guys for having me on. It's been a ton of fun. You know, I I was I was happy to get waylaid by you guys at our our summit back when back when we saw each other but uh this is this is such a a great way to get reintroduced to you too so thank you so much it's been a great time all right thanks so much alex thank you guys very much have a good rest of your day you too take care Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our free and unimprisoned minds. Unimprisoned. We're free. We we can we, we we're not incarcerated. 
Thank goodness for that, man. Yeah. Holy cow. Well, there are times I probably could have been, you know? Yeah? Yeah, I've, I've done some things <laughs> that I just didn't get caught, you know? There you go. We're not going there, though. No, we're, we're not going there. We're going to talk no. about some behavioral science stuff. Let's talk about context. Context, because context... Maybe is everything. Oh, I was going to say context matters, but... I know. It, well, <laughs> of course it matters. You think context could be everything? Oh man, it's so huge! It's so huge. Get it? You should get a T-shirt. This context is everything. I heart context. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want. All right, context, context. What what do we want to talk about for context? Oh man, if you want if you want to change, you you can't you can't just change within. Uh, you you can't be a criminal and go back to and come out of prison and go back to the very same place that you lived in the same environment where you committed the crimes and expect that your life will be 180 degrees different and have the same social people around you and all right. of those factors that led you in the first place or were part of that the the component that led you into this this life of crime right. so in in Vietnam some 20% of all Vietnam soldiers Became, became heroin users. Wow. 20%. But when they returned to the United States with no s- significant intervention, only 5% remained remained users. And and the reason for that, or they, they hypothesize, is that the, the environment, the context within way, the way that Vietnam veterans were using heroin didn't apply when they came back to the United States. You're not in a jungle. You're not in a war situation. You're not having bullets fired at you and right. under that constant stress along with these other guys that are using, right? You're going back to your hometown and you know, you're know you on your suburban city street and it no longer has the same drive, the no, same appeal. It's not. It's totally different. Which is which is very different than oftentimes how we think about you know drug addiction as well. But that plays itself into behavior. I think it plays itself into behavior really, really well because we often don't think about the impact that context, environment, and social, right? That that physical environment that we're in and the social environment that we're in plays on our behavior. We often attribute it to Hey, I'm a success, or I, I'm 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 doing these things because of the determination and grit and whatever else that Regardless I. Regardless of the context that I'm in, it's really it has to do with my inner drive. It's my inner drive. It's yeah. who I am. It's yeah. it's it's what it is. And I'm not saying that that isn't important. No, but but it's an attribution bias to some degree. It is an attribution bias to some degree. It you know that that. I did this because I worked really hard at it. They're doing that because they got lucky or they got it because they were lucky or they're, they're bad people because there's something wrong with them. With their lack of drive, their lack of determination, their lack of grit. Right. And I go back to Trading Places, the movie with Eddie Murphy, right? Perfect. And Dan Aykroyd. Perfect. You know, you, you, you take these people out of the context that they have been in and you switch their places and and is it that internal component or is it the context that they're in? And so Eddie Murphy going from being you know a beggar stealer on the street to being you know a Wall Street an trader, yeah. and Dan Aykroyd going from this you know high society you know Wall Street trader to being a beggar on the street. And context is important, and I think we often miss that. We we miss the impact that that has on our behavior, and so from a an impact perspective, A, just thinking about before we attribute that person who's who's begging on the street to, well, why don't you just get a job, right? Um, you know, and, and instead of doing that, 
there's probably some contextual and social aspects that play into it as well as, you know, a variety of other factors. Not again saying that personal grit and fortitude and and you know who we are isn't important. It's just it, it's not a hundred percent, and there are other factors that come into play. This attribution bias uh, is is rampant, right? But if we look at our own lives and we think about how we behave differently than when when we're watching our our own kids play soccer versus how our behavior is when we're watching a professional soccer game, yeah, or what it's like when we're presenting the strategic plan to the team that reports to us versus how we behave when we're presenting the strategic plan to our boss, those are very different behaviors. We behave differently. We speak differently. We choose to do different things. It's not because of grit and determination. It's because of the context that we behave differently. Right. And and, and there's nothing wrong with no, that. No, nothing wrong with it. But we have to understand it. And recognize it. And recognize it. Because too often we're, we're well, I should present that that strategic plan the same way regardless. And that is actually not how it should be. It, it, it's contextually relevant to how I talk to it based on where I am and how I am. I think some, some un, you know, and we, we recognize that, right? I I think we can recognize that component. What we don't necessarily recognize is that because I'm presenting in a smaller intimate room versus a larger boardroom, the, the impact that that has on how I present the colors of the wall can impact that. Did I oh, see absolutely. a poster, of, you know, that was inspiring to me, or did I just watch a news show that was, you know, something that was, uh, you know, had me disgusted or angry, and that plays into all of these other factors. And so context is is key, and we can't discount it as much as I think we do. And from a behavior change perspective, and this is the other part that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, uh, still relevant to context. Still relevant to context, right? Um, but but Alex talked about that, you know, one of the things that he's faced with is that, and, and I'll quote here, is we're really trying to focus on getting people at that critical point. Yeah. So if Time and place, right? Time and place. And I think there's social components included in that. So I think two... I think the next stage of behavioral change, um, programs, interventions, applications, tools, whatever it would be, we need to take into account how do we get people and and have that intervention at that critical time. And that, that intervention you're talking about is a message, right? It's a communication. It, it could be anything. Oh, it could I, be. Okay. It, it could be anything. So, um, but message is an easy way to think about this. So, uh, I might have an app that reminds me to take my medication at a certain time. Yeah, let's say uh, seven o'clock at night. Seven o'clock at night, right? I'm supposed to take my pills. Great. What happens though if that, and it sends me a text? Or, oh, nice. You know, great. So I get a text at seven, remind me to take my pills. Great. I'm at home. I go upstairs. I take my pill. What happens though if I'm out at dinner or if I'm at the soccer game and I can't go in there? Oh, I look at that that text and you then don't have your pills with you. I don't have my pills with me. Wouldn't it be much more uh, impactful if it realized, hey, I am not at home, right? And so the text will wait until I arrive home. So now I'm, you know, nine o'clock, I get home from that dinner, and now it texts me, hey, Kurt, you need to go take your pills. Yes. Or... uh, Or in advance of, of you going out, if you have on your calendar that you're going to the soccer game... 
and then the soccer game starts at six, the app might say, uh, you're getting ready to go to the soccer game before you go, take your pills with you because you need to take them at seven o'clock. Exactly. And, and so you can set up, you can think about all the different ways that we could set up those kind of tools that take that into account. I think there's also a component. And again, this gets into some of the ethics and maybe a little bit too big brotherish and of, of different things. But, you know, I have an app right now that I can track where my wife and, and son are based on their phone. And so there do, could be. Do they call you big brother? They, they, they call me big daddy. That's what they call me. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> but you could set up tools, you know, and again, it'd have to be opt-in and very transparent and very different things, but oftentimes our behavior is so influenced by the people that we're around. Absolutely. And sometimes that's for the positive and sometimes it's for the negative. And so potentially you could develop programs or change initiatives that are are using that social context too of saying, hey, you are around these different people and you set this reminder when you're around this person, you know, they might get you mad. Well, maybe it's, you know, a calming thing of something. I don't know. There's lots of different things. I think it's just something that that's going to be that next iteration. I think that it needs to go that way, but I also think that there's some ethical concerns that that need to be arranged around that. Can I give an example? I want to give an example of a friend of ours who trains uh, people to clean stadiums. And it's hard work, right? And it goes through a, a multi-day training session with them. And at, they used to give the, all the trainees a big fat booklet. Right. And in the booklet, set, it said, um, among dozens and dozens of pages, on your first day work, show up at this, at this location. Right. And 50% of, of all of the new hires didn't show up. And so Peter went in and changed it. He made sure that on the last day of the training, he gave them a card that they could put in their pocket, keep with them easily. And it had uh, on your first day of work, this is where you show up, not just the address, but then a picture of the door that they were going in. So he's reducing friction to make it easier for them to manage how to get to that door. And guess what? He went from 50% uh, uh, attrition to zero. So 100% of all the new trainees showed up on the first day at, at the, the right time and place. And I think this touches on a couple other pieces, which gets into how do we use communication? Do we use communication in a way that reduces friction? Um, or is communication... You know, we're trying. It goes back to the GI Joe fallacy, right? Where information in and of itself is enough to change behavior, and 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 that has been proven pretty much no. It, information by itself uh, isn't isn't really enough to change behavior. Absolutely, it's not. But when communication is done well, right? Yes. When it, it and, and when we can tie it back into it, that communication comes at that critical point, right? It it is either in a format where hey, this is easy to use. I don't have a big binder I have to go in. It's this card. I can take the card home. I can put it up on my fridge. All of those other facets that come into play. So now it becomes more readily available at the right time, but it also has the right information that reduces friction, provides me with both the the component and guides me in what I need to do. But it's easy to imagine that the, the trainer that wrote the original manual said, I included, is thinking very rationally to themselves, I included the, the time and place uh, where they need to show up on their first day in the manual. It was right there. Right. It just wasn't done in a way that was relevant to the context in which they needed it. Yeah, very good. Back to context. All right. So I, I want to talk one, one last thing. Um, and this is 
context a little bit, but it, it's more about implementation in, intentions, right? Yeah. And so you you know we 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 talked about that in there with Alex, and you know there, we have goal intentions, and and goal intentions versus implementation intentions are two very different two different things. things. Goal intentions are the things that hey, I have this goal and I want to achieve this goal. Implementation in, intentions are saying. I have this goal, and in order to achieve that goal, I have to do X. So I will, I will do X at this point in time. And so that's often parlayed into if-then statements. So if this happens, then I will do that, or when then things. You know, so when when this occurs, I will do you know Y, right? Um, and Alex talked about this component. I thought this was really key is he said that oftentimes the triggers that we want to have in our environments, um, you know, maybe those things that we have to, are, are things that we have to kind of make up or describe on our own. And I thought that was, it, was, it blew my mind. In other words, it's really hard to identify those things. It's hard to, it's so, really so, damn hard. So it's the when, then statements or the if, then statements. We don't know what those ifs are all the right. time. Right, we don't know the whens, and so yeah. how do you describe it? And, and implementation intentions work best when they're specific. So it is, you know, when I when I brush my teeth, I will then floss, you know, my teeth as well. Yeah. Right. It, you, you tie them oftentimes to, to current habits or various different things. You don't know when you're going to brush your teeth necessarily. Right. But when you do that, then you're, and that is very specific. That's very specific. Yeah. But there's a lot in life that's not that specific. There's a lot in life that's not that specific, and particularly some of those implementation intentions, which are, um, so there's there's the the components of being a to do this thing, right? So I, you know, when this happens, I will do this. But there's oftentimes those implementation intentions that. If this happens, I won't do this. I won't respond That's right. in anger That's right. and various different things. And those, particularly is in the recidivism, kind of the, the piece that they're talking about, right? Those are huge. And so how do you build those implementation tensions when we don't know what those triggers are going to be? Which gets back to his reference to the Rogers and Milkman work. Yes. Right? Through association. And uh, I know that I need to get rid of the recyclables that have been accumulated in the house, in the bin, in the house, uh, when it gets full. But I don't want to do it right now. Yeah, I don't ever got to, want I, to do I, it. I, <laughs> You know, uh, I guess we have to do that, but you know, it's not, yeah, if I had to do it when I wanted to do it, it would never get done. All right. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go so, ahead. So it has to be done. It has to be done. I will not remember when I'm going outside to to remove the bin from the house to put it in the big uh, recycling bin that's going to go out to the to the curb. I will forget. I forget all the damn time. Write yourself a message. Not enough. Milkman and Rogers decided and discovered that that's not enough. Writing something down uh, as a reminder is only partially effective. The better thing is to just use association. So I pull the recycling bin out of the place in the house uh, that it that we store it. And then I put it next to the door, next to the door that I'm going outside. So that the next time I go outside, it's like, oh, it actually intervenes. It literally stops me from going outside unless I take that that bin with me and take it outside. Right. And I, I, Whenever but, that happens, under whatever circumstances. Right. And Rogers and Milkman used a, an example of, uh, you know, late at night and you're in bed and you go, oh my gosh, I got to mail that letter tomorrow. Right? <laughs> right. And it's underneath all those pieces of paper on my desk. So uh, visualize, okay, so when I see my computer on my desk, 
that's the reminder for me to then go, oh, I have to mail that 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 letter. And so if you can visualize that, that can be very powerful. I, I would pieces. typically uh, actually just get up in the middle of the night, wander into uh, my stack of stuff, grab the, the thing that I need to mail, put it in front of the computer, and then stub my toe on the way back to bed. Yeah. That would be my way of dealing with it. Yeah. that <laughs> Not my way. <laughs> anyway. All right. Anything else we want to groove on? No. Lots lots of great music uh, that we discussed, and I'm going to have lots of uh, links in the show notes to ska and reggae and uh, mento. Just it just delighted my mind hearing those words. I will I will I will check those out. And so, listeners, groovers, please, if uh, you want to listen to some ska and, and you uh, appreciate you know Tim's you know links and recommendations there. Leave a leave a recommendation of oh, your or own, or send us a note. Or send us a note. Leave yeah. leave a little saying. Hey, these guys are great, and and Tim, thank you for the the sky recommendations and all that others. We want to talk to you. We we want to hear from you, and uh, we just appreciate you listening. So yeah, thank you. thanks very much. Mm-hmm.